would like to introduce the great Greg Foss. Great. Holy smokes. Well, thank you for having me. Certainly not great, but happy to be here. <laughs> How are you doing today? How's this price action treating you? Okay. Uh, don't take my smile uh, in the wrong way, but I love markets like this. I've spent 30 years. Volatility is my friend. Volatility makes careers. And uh, I'm not saying I'm a, having a career maker day by any means, but uh, this is playing right into our script, right? The Fed is cornered. Markets are puking. We knew that would happen. The taper tantrum is real for a second time. You just have to set up your portfolio accordingly and manage risk accordingly. I love it. So, Greg, we have a lot of new listeners on this side of things for this uh, show. Do you mind? I know you've done this before, but going into your backstory a little bit and how you came to Bitcoin and to be such a big voice in Bitcoin. Oh, okay, thanks. Uh, so, yeah, I'm uh, 58 years old. So, 30 years ago, actually, let's make, do the math. Uh, two th uh, 1988, I graduated from Cornell University. I'm a Canadian, but I went down for a two-year uh, MBA at Cornell, which was an amazing experience. Uh, but in 1988, I came back to Canada. I was an engineer in, train, uh, in undergrad, came back to Canada, and I wanted to work in financial engineering, okay? Uh, I love mathematics. I'm okay at it as far as engineers go, but uh, I decided the finance industry was my uh, calling, and I came back to Canada and worked for Canada's largest financial institution at the time, which it still is Canada's largest financial institution, the Royal Bank of Canada, and make a long story short, one of my first projects working directly for the CFO of the Royal Bank of Canada was to work on our defaulted Latin American debt portfolio. Okay. And the Royal Bank of Canada had $4 billion of exposure to LBC debt, lesser developed country debt of which Latin America was a big component. All of these countries had defaulted because they had taken out floating rate loans priced in U.S. dollars, and in the early 80s, Paul Volcker raised rates so excessively to fight inflation that these floating rate loans meant the, rate, the rates went up in lockstep. These floating rate loans were extremely hard to service, and not to mention the fact that the U.S. dollar was strengthening, so they had to pay U.S. dollar interest expense, which was rising in a currency that wasn't their own. Essentially, all of these countries uh, bankrupt, 1988. And I looked at uh, our exposure because Te Treasury Secretary Nicholas Brady of the U.S. came out with what was called the Brady Plan. The Brady Plan was uh, an attempt, and it was a successful attempt, to solve the Mexican portion of that uh, Latin American debt port uh, exposure. Anyway, I won't go into the math, but I quickly determined that Royal Bank of Canada, Canada's largest financial institution, was insolvent in 1988. And I'm like, what the heck is this? A Canadian financial institution is actually on its way to bankruptcy? So I went to the CFO. I said, Emil, we have a problem. He says, I know we do. Don't tell anybody. But certainly the reality was that Treasury Secretary Nicholas Brady knew because every single money center bank in New York, as well as global money center banks, were all in the exact same boat. The banking system was insolvent, which basically means the book value of their equity was vaporized if you mark down the value of the loans to a market trading price. In the case of Latin American debt, you had to write off 75% of the value of the loan. You write that off against your risk-absorbing capital, which is called equity. When you write that off, equity goes negative. If equity is negative book value, you know you're called insolvent, and the next step is bankruptcy. And I'm like, this is how the fiat system works? I, I, you know, I didn't learn this at Cornell. I certainly don't understand why people deposit their money in banks. And then you think about it for a sec. Why do people deposit their money in banks? And they all say it's because they're too big to fail and the government will bail them out, right? Well, the government bailing them out, how? The government can print money. So 1988, I'm like, 
All right, I have a ton of school loans. Am I going to run to the Wall Street Journal? Because none of the financial analysts on Wall Street had a clue either, okay? They had buy recommendations on the stock because, oh, it's got to be cheap. It's come down from 50 bucks a share to 4 bucks a share in the case of Citibank. It's got to be cheap. you got to buy it. Uh, uh, no, actually, you don't have to buy it because at the end of the day, this thing can go to zero and even the debt can become impaired. But that's another story. Point is... 1988, exposure to the Fiat Ponzi, looking for a solution. Am I going to run to the Wall Street Journal and torpedo my career? I have a bunch of school loans and I don't have the solution. Well, fast forward to 2016 after living through long-term capital management in 1998, the great financial crisis in 2008, and then the COVID book. We didn't hit the COVID crisis. I was introduced into Bitcoin in 2016. And I'm like, oh my God. I have been looking for this solution for over 25 years. Now, I thought it was a Ponzi, right? Because I read mainstream media and I actually said, yeah, it's got to be a Ponzi. You know, what's... then I actually did some homework and I saw the blockchain in action at tradeblock.com. And as an engineer, being visual, I see these beautiful, living, breathing machine transferring value from address to address around the globe. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And nobody controls this. There's no central bank shenanigans. And I was in love, absolutely in love because for 25 years, I've been looking for this solution. So in 2016, the world had a chance to backpedal with all the financial kicking the can down the road they'd done through the three successive crises that I'd lived through. It would have been a very austere and painful process. And any politician that decided they were going to take that upon themselves to do that would certainly be voted out of office the next term. So they decide not to do it. They try a little bit and recall when the last taper tantrum was, equity markets did exactly the same thing. They puked. The Fed took their foot off the brake. They tried to assuage everyone who's concerned about how capitalism works, and the Ponzi continued. Then 2019-20, uh, 2020, I guess, whenever the COVID crisis hit hard, that's when the mathematics made it 100% certain we cannot escape this debt spiral. This debt spiral, as a lot of other smart, uh, I'm not saying I'm smart, but other smart macro guys like Luke Groman points out, the USA can't meet its interest expense on its funded debt without extreme US dollar liquidity, which if they start taking that out of the system, which is called tightening, the whole thing collapses. The Fiat Ponzi is 100% certain to continue. It's just that nobody at the Fed has done the math and they're trying to jawbone the market into believing they can hike rates eight or six times. That's what they're leaking out through Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan. Guys, it's mathematically impossible to do it. They might hike, hike rates, but they're just going to have to print money even faster. So it's just like sucking and blowing at the same time. Okay, These guys are a bunch of buffoons. You don't ask a lawyer to run the most important central bank <laughs> in the world. It's very simple. Craig, I'm gonna, I, I just want to chime in. I'm Q. It's a pleasure to not only get to meet you, I've, I've listened to you talk so many times. I'm so excited to have this conversation with someone who sees it very similarly to the way I see it. Okay. Quite frankly, no, we can never do this whole tape. Huey forever. Huey forever. Nice to meet you. Learn math. It's grade 11 math. And if you believe differently, you know, here, you know, take the glue bag off. Okay. Take that stupid glue bag off your heads. You guys, it is simple mathematics. I think another thing too, that like, to your point, like we, we have these lawyers making decisions about global economics at this point. In today's day and age, after what we saw in 2008, it is global economics whenever it comes to what well, happens. Yeah. They could, the U.S. is the most expensive. Uh, so let's go back to my experience in 1988. The USA has always been the most important economy in the world. And the Federal Bank, the Federal Reserve is the most important central bank in the world. In 1988, they fought inflation by raising interest rates domestically and, and succeeded in bankrupting 44 countries, 44, 
Now, fast forward to now where our debt balloon is bigger and more onerous, and the US dollar is strengthening the same component that causes emerging markets to get destroyed. You can strengthen the US dollar by tapering, essentially withdrawing reserves from the system so that the value of the US dollar is perceived to go higher. Emerging market currencies shit the bed and it, it toilets all of a sudden they are hedging, their equity markets are getting destroyed. So there's people out there hedging by shorting the S&P as a hedge against emerging markets and it doesn't work. Where does it come home to roost? When pensioners in the USA said, I thought my pension fund was funded and now the equity markets are down 15% to start the year. That's when the politicians wake up and say, midterm elections, eh? Well, I'm not so sure I want the market to be down 20% and people worried about their pension plans. This tapering is going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to institute in the, in the short term. And it is impossible to institute in the long term. We've entered the final phase of this money printing where we just can't stop. I mean, it's yes, yeah, you're totally right. Yeah. But here's the, there is a solution. It's a parallel solution. I do not want the U.S. to fail. I need you to be very clear. Yes, I live in Canada, but the USA is the most important component of the global financial system. Canada is a rounding error. Like we just don't matter. Okay, Canada, go on your way. You're not even as big as the state of California. So quit causing trouble. You might have a buffoon as a prime minister, but even he doesn't matter. Okay. At the end of the day, what you got to understand is the USA is the world's uh, insurance policy. Everybody needs the USA to succeed. And when the USA starts making all these other countries uh economy is difficult, they look for hedges, they look for other outs. And, you know, I wrote an article for Bitcoin magazine with Seb Bunny, a great kid from uh, Whistler, British Columbia, who's actually a Kiwi living in Whistler. Uh, we wrote why Bitcoin is the perfect option. And, you know, I, I'm proud of that article, having written it with Seb, because it's true. Bitcoin is a put on the Federal Reserve failing to institute global calm. So it's a put on what's called the Fed put. The Fed put is generally, Alan Greenspan started this in the great, in, in the 1987 with the uh, financial markets crash in 1987. He cut rates to uh, help the stock market, even though the USA was not in recession. It's the first time in history that a, a central banker had cut rates to assuage financial markets, not economic recession or negative growth. So since 1987, this has been a policy where the Fed put monitor or the Fed monitors uh, uh, global stock markets, particularly domestic stock markets. And the Fed put is a reality. Has it changed, allowed equity markets to go up to un unsustainable levels? Uh, yeah, but that's how it's been. So when they try and stop this, you get days like today. And days like today, uh, if you had done your homework, you would know that they happen because people all of a sudden withdraw liquidity from the system. And in a liquidity unwind, pretty well every asset gets torpedoed. Bonds are a horrible investment even before this happened. But there's no out. The only out is to continue to print money. And when you continue to print money, your fiat gets debased. That's 100% certain. And when your fiat gets debased, you need hard assets. Hard assets that will preserve your time and energy uh, for use in the future. And don't store your time and energy in a debasing fiat. You need to store your time and energy in other hard assets. You know my feeling on Bitcoin, but Bitcoin's getting flushed right now with the rest of the crypto space, and rightly so, according to any other crypto trader, because cryptos, every other crypto besides Bitcoin is actually a security. So when security markets fall, every other crypto, which is a security, falls in lockstep. 
And what do most other crypto holders do to hedge their crypto exposure? Well, they short Bitcoin, don't they? So it's all part of the whole process. Bitcoin is going to fall further. There is no question in the context of other security markets falling as well. But over time, people will actually understand that Bitcoin is your insurance policy. It is actually the opposite of any other crypto out there and any other security out there. Mm-hmm. It's a long process, a long education process, you guys. And yeah, look, I own Bitcoin, so it's down. But I'm, I'm a professional risk manager. I absolutely have hedges against my Bitcoin exposure. And those hedges are paying dividends today. And, you know, I'll live to fight another day. I know it's difficult for people that are out there that have bought Bitcoin at higher prices and don't have the, the hedges in place. But if they had listened to guys like me and Jeff Booth, I hope they did. They didn't go all in. You never go all in on one asset. Okay. I am a Bitcoin maxi. I'm not, I need you to understand that, but I am not a hundred percent in on Bitcoin. That's but not how you manage risk. And at the end of the day, if Bitcoin goes to the price, I think it will. I don't have to be a hundred percent in, in order to do really well, right? That the X percent of my portfolio that is in Bitcoin, if it goes up a hundred and two hundred times from here, do the math. You're going to do just fine on a portfolio or a risk adjusted basis. Okay. And so days like today, I have never said be a hundred percent in Bitcoin, but days like today make it easier for me to uh, make the argument. The only wrong allocation to Bitcoin is zero. But in my opinion, being a hundred percent allocated to Bitcoin as well can lead to some you know, not so comfortable days. And today's one of those days. Um, Am I happy about it, guys? No, I'm not happy when people lose money. I think Bitcoin is the solution, but it doesn't help our narrative when, you know, it falls as much as Netflix has fallen. It falls as much as other, you know, far less valuable assets and instruments to solve the fiat Ponzi. But that happens when you have a bunch of traders and, and, and players who have not done the math we're using it as a hedging instrument against other silly exposures like, you know, uh, altcoins and, uh, you know, penny stocks and uh, all this stuff that, uh, or meme stocks, I should say. It's painful. It's painful when this happens. I've lived through a number of them. Hopefully you go home and live to fight another day because you've put in your hedges so that you can harvest the, uh, the dampening of, of the portfolio. So long drawn out. Please understand, people, I am not rejoicing in anybody's pain here. This is not about me saying, uh, I told you so, I told you so. No, 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 no. This is about understanding risk management and putting things in place that will protect you to live to fight another day. In 20 years, am I confident that Bitcoin will be the solution? Yes. But getting from here to 20 years from now, you can experience some drawdowns and they hurt. So, Greg... The obvious question is, I'm someone, I, I mean, I wouldn't call myself a Bitcoin maximalist, but I hold Bitcoin and I, for the most part, only hold Bitcoin. So okay. from this perspective, what is the path or strategy? What are hedges or hedging strategies that you implement or suggest for new Bitcoiners who are maybe can't stomach this risk? Yeah. I know there's no well, one first solution of all, if you can't for everyone. Stomach it, you own too much. Okay. And I, I hate to say it any other way. If you cannot stomach it, yeah. That's probably an indication that you went too far over your skis. What are, so what am I? I'm essentially a volatility trader. Okay. So on days like today, if you look at what the VIX has done in the last three days, the VIX is up 50%. So if, imagine if I own some VIX, imagine if, uh, you know, I can, I can cash in that insurance. Now over time, generally the VIX will uh, have time decay, but on days like today, when that, position is up 50%, you're like, hey, that's uh, not a bad uh, little little result. And so my whole life has been spent trading volatility, and I don't expect to be able to, uh, well, I certainly not even going to try to explain pe- to people what that means. But there's a lot of uh, 
old time risk managers out there that understand what I'm saying, because if you survive for 30 years in the markets today, now I'll take it one step farther, Alex. Again, I'm not rejoicing. I'm not rejoicing because if things do unravel and all of a sudden the fiat system does go to hell in a handbasket, we do not have the uh, parallel system in place yet that will solve this. You know, Bitcoin hasn't been embraced as this parallel system. You hit, see all the guys, oh, store of value. That's hilarious. These equity idiots that are out there saying, oh, so they called the store of uh, Bitcoin a store of value. Fuck you guys, okay? You grew up like 10 years ago. You have no idea what credit is. You're a bunch of buffoons managing money in equity markets. You got to learn what really makes the markets work, and that's credit. And Bitcoin is insurance on the credit system. And equities are nothing but you know, a derivative or the tail of the dog called credit. There could be some very painful days to come, depending on what happens at the Fed meeting starting tomorrow. Okay. You think 10% is painful? Wait until they announce that they are not wavering from their prediction of six interest rate hikes. 10% is going to feel like a holiday. Okay. This is dangerous. This is what happens when the Fed backs themselves into a corner and the market is calling their bluff. We'll see what happens. My fellow clubs, the Bitcoin conference is back. Bitcoin 2022, April 6th through the 9th is the ultimate pilgrimage for the Bitcoin ecosystem. The Bitcoin conference is the biggest event in all of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We're leveling up and making this bigger and better than ever. I'm talking straight to the moon with the four-day long festival in the heart of Miami at the Miami Beach Convention Center. This has something for everyone. Whether you're a high-powered Bitcoin entrepreneur, a core developer, or a Bitcoin newbie, Bitcoin 2022 is the ultimate place for you to be with your people and celebrate and learn about the Bitcoin culture. So make sure to go to b.tc forward slash conference to lock in your official tickets and use promo code Satoshi for 10% off. Want more off? Pay in Bitcoin and you'll receive $100 off general admission and $1,000 off whale pass. Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history. I do actually, I know you said you don't want to dive into this, but I actually do want to at least touch on briefly just volatility in general. It gets a little bit of a bad rap. You think it's a necessarily bad thing or it could be an overly good thing. But you have to play both sides of it. If something is more volatile, for example, I don't mean it. Yeah, that way. Listen, volatility is a fact of life and assets are defined as being long vol assets or short vol assets. Most assets out there are what's called short vol, meaning when volatility is declining, equity prices are rising, credit spreads are narrowing, everything with a risk uh, component is going up in value. Why? Because volatility, which is a measure of risk, is declining. So when you're short something that's declining, you're making money, aren't you? When you're short something that's going down. But how does VIX trade? Down, 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 boom, spike. It takes the elevator up, right? The stairway down and the elevator up. Well, these days, the elevator is going up. So I look for long volatility assets in my career. It used to be that the treasury bond was a long volatility asset, which meant when the VIX was declining, the treasury bond was kicking along, paying its coupon. But when VIX spiked, everybody ran out of equities and into the bond and the price of bonds went up. Well, right now, the price of bonds are not going up because they have lost their, and when I say bonds, I mean US treasury bonds, not high yield bonds. They have lost their long vol characteristics because interest rates are so low. There's no longer a cushion. What are other long volatility assets out there? Well, when you own options, you own an option, an option gets more valuable when volatility kicks up. It's my opinion that Bitcoin is the perfect long volatility asset. Why is that? Because essentially Bitcoin in my mind as a credit trader is being short sovereign risk means you own insurance on sovereign credits, not being able to make 
payments on their outstanding contractual obligations. If that's in fact the case, which the market has not embraced yet, but I'm trying to promote that only because I absolutely firmly believe it, Bitcoin is the perfect long volatility asset. And over time, if we actually live through a couple of other financial crises, and that's going to be a, an argument of itself, when vol spikes, over time, Bitcoin, in my opinion, should spike as well because it's actually protection. It's your insurance. And when things get risky, you actually run and buy insurance. Let's see what happens. It isn't there yet. Um, am I disappointed? I think the price of Bitcoin has been a rounding error, and I'm not prepared to tell you whether I think it's worth 20000 50000 150000 All of those prices are rounding errors in the context of what I think its true value is. I completely agree with that, and I do kind of want to uh, ask you if, if you will entertain us a little bit of like you mentioned you do believe the price of Bitcoin to go will continue to go down. What are some of these? Well, let me let's be careful. It will continue to go down in correlation with other risk assets, which include crypto, which are short vol assets. Every other asset in digital asset world is a short volatility asset. But what do some of these crypto asset managers do? Oh, they buy puts or uh, they short Bitcoin futures or they use Bitcoin as a hedge against their, their uh, uh, other digital assets. Is it smart? I think they, they may be inverted, meaning they don't understand what they're shorting. But in the short run, yeah, they've been right. Uh, uh, there's a correlation there and there's more that, of them than there are of me. But, you know, this is an education process. It's, uh, it, it may go down. The reason it goes down, in my opinion, is because the Fed jawbones the market into believing that six interest rate hikes are inevitable. I don't think they're even possible, but yes, that's how it goes down. So at what point do we start to see that decoupling, though? Is Boy, it I couldn't tell you. Can you give me the date? I, you give me the date and I promise I'll make you a lot of money, okay? So just give me the date and I'll tell you how to trade it. Meet me in Vegas and, and we'll, while we have all yeah, that. Yeah, but it's, here's the cooler thing, right? This actually is math. And this is, uh, so the probability is there that it happens. But the timing is a bigger uncertainty, right? How long does it take to educate the world about the beauty of this long volatility insurance contract? And it's going to take an awful lot of time because you guys you got guys like Gary Black out there, an equity manager who doesn't fucking know shit, that says stuff like, <laughs> oh, Bitcoin is, uh, you know, Bitcoin's a risk asset. And don't tell me. Any. He's a fucking equity clown. Equity clowns <laughs> are the problems with most, most markets, okay? They don't understand math. They play themes. And they don't understand that they're actually a derivative or the tail of the dog called the credit markets. None of them understand credit markets. So they, they spew silly stuff that most people read and believe because, oh, he must be smart. He manages money. Right. I mean, all of the money, USD is just created simply through credit. Like there's nothing. Absolutely. Nothing else is backing it. So in effect, it genuinely is a glorified Ponzi scheme that we have as far as. Oh, no, they, they, they look, this is the purest example of a Ponzi. I mean, Lawrence Leppard and, and whoever coined it, Max Kaiser or Stacy or whoever coined it, I'm using it. You cannot taper a Ponzi, okay? Man, that is the most brilliant expression that I've learned on uh, Bitcoin Twitter uh, in the year and a half I've been involved in this uh, Pretty, pretty funny space, right? Like uh, lots yeah. of really smart people, lots of emotional people, lots of people who tweet stuff and then wish they didn't, myself included. Sometimes you just get too far <laughs> over your skis, right? But we do it because we care. And um, do I want, I, I, I got to stress this so hard, guys. I am not a Bitcoin maximalist that wants the USA to fail. There are people out there that I believe do want that. And my best advice is, you better be careful what you wish for, okay? Why don't we work towards solving this where you have a parallel network? One's called fiat, that's your savings, excuse me, your checking account, and one called Bitcoin, which is your, your savings account, and the two can actually 
work in concert and make the USA even stronger than it already is. Boy, it's a tough, it's a tough road to hoe, uh, to hoe right? Uh, in, in this, uh, in this, in a, in a market like this, but we're only 13 years old. Uh, you know, we've seen these, uh, uh, 50% drawdowns before, um, how far might, how much lower is it going to go? If you tell me how, how much further the equity markets will go, I'll tell you how much further I think the, uh, the Bitcoin market will go, but it's, uh, it's a bit of a, it's a painful process right now. And by the way, look, I own some equities. I own some real estate. None of these things are doing particularly well today. Um, the only thing that is doing well is volatility. So um, I'm not going to go out there and tell people how to trade volatility either, though. It took me 30 years to learn how to not lose as much money as you can possibly lose. Uh, so <laughs> you got to, you know, you got to do it with uh, a little bit of experience under your belt. I've taken the role in this show and with a lot of our viewers as, as the one person who continues to preach what you say of, I don't go all in. I don't care what asset it is, whatever it is. I just, I've, I've learned that lesson before. I've made that mistake and that's a very expensive lesson to learn. I've learned it one too many times at this point and it's not something that I'm willing to, to recreate. So tell me a little bit about yourself, Q. Um, like, you know, what's your experience? How did you, how did you learn to manage risk? Uh, over time, and I'm, I'm going to guess your age is not 58, okay? I'm not sure how old you are, but I'm almost certain you're not as old as I am, right? So <laughs> uh, I think, uh, unfortunately, I, I will just tell you flat out, you got to subtract 30 from that, and then you got my... Which is good. Um, I'll tell you, when I was your age, I didn't know shit. And uh, that's true, because when you come out of university, generally, you don't know shit, okay? Everyone thinks you know something, but you really don't. You don't know shit. So you got to learn through sitting in the risk chair. You got to learn uh, not from uh, endowed professors that have never sat in a risk chair before who pretend they know stuff, but they've actually never managed risk. So their paper looks really good in writing, but it, it, it holds no water when markets melt down. So anyway, so you're, yeah, you're 30 years younger than me. Um, you, you've come, you, you're, you're talking a really good language uh, because most people your age don't understand this. No, I, I uh, was very fortunate that I made the decision halfway through college to change my, my second major from marketing to finance. Okay. I was a starry-eyed kid who watched Jerry Maguire and I genuinely was like, oh, I'm going to just be Jerry Maguire. Went down that path. I, I went all in on that lifestyle, all in on that career had my fun with it. Um, and like in the back of my mind, I was still learning more about finance. I still had my own equity account. I was trading and it was, it was that beginner luck mentality of every single trade that I was making was working. <laughs> Everyone's a genius in a bull market, right? Exactly. I couldn't, I couldn't pick a loser. Yeah. I couldn't pick a loser, even though it was, it was literally the fed that was making me look like, yes, a sir. Yes, sir. And then the second, the second I took my eyes away from that and was like, I'm just going to let this portfolio sit investor. Little did I realize that you could have two winners, but if the rest of the portfolio is toxic and full of like depleting and, and yeah, is that are just on their way out that portfolio, you're lucky if you break even. And thankfully I didn't get it to zero, but it got very close uh -huh. to zero. Uh, was able to build it back with my Were you doing it for yourself or were you doing it for other people? Strictly for myself. Okay, try doing it for other people, all right? <laughs> it's easiest to lose your own money. And then it's second easiest to lose a bank's money. You still feel shitty about it, but it's a bank's money. Then do it when you're managing money for friends and family. And you feel like an absolute fool. You go home and you're like, I lost a ton of money today. And they're supposed to tell you, well, you did really well compared to the index. Meaning, you know, you're down 10%, but the index is down 25%. You're like, oh, you can't buy money, you, you know, you can't buy uh, uh, more groceries with that type of performance, but still you're supposed to feel good. So, you know, I did it for 30 years. Let me tell you, managing money for other people is an incredibly stressful occupation. And most good risk managers care. And here's my daily shot at Peter Schiff, except for him. He's admitted he doesn't care. What a fucking loser, okay? Shifty Pete <laughs> is a conflicted fuck who says that he didn't care when I called him out on a, a debate on Peter McCormick's uh, uh, podcast as being a horrible risk manager. He says, yeah, well, so what? I don't care. Well, anybody with money with Peter Schiff 
If you don't listen to a risk asset manager who says he doesn't care about your money, you deserve to lose the money you're going to lose with guys like Peter Schiff. He has this arrogance about him too. Just, it's almost like this lack of desire. Yeah. Let's not, you know what? I, I like his son and he's, he, he gave birth to a, well, he didn't give birth to, but he, uh, he participated in the, in the creation of a, of a, of a great son. And uh, let's give him uh, kudos for that. But as far as a risk manager and then always, you know, what is he? He's the ambulance chaser, right? Yeah. I told you Bitcoin would go down. I told you Bitcoin would go down. If he had bought 1% of his portfolio in Bitcoin, when he first heard about it at $10 a Bitcoin, 1% of his gold portfolio, he'd be up over 600 times for his whole portfolio. And he's a good risk manager? No, sir. He's an absolute conflicted buffoon. And I've used those words a lot today. I'm a buffoon. I'll admit it. Shifty Pete, at least admit you're a buffoon because you're costing a lot of people money with your advice. I believe, oh, there's uh, the clip right there. This is a direct challenge from Greg Foss to come and debate the mayor. No, I can't do it anymore. Here's the funny thing. Like, it's like debating a toaster, right? It's like debating a toaster. You put the toast down, you know that it's going to pop up at some point, but he never changes his tune. The guy has given so much horrible advice to risk managers anywhere that anyone who listens to him right now, I guess I've just turned turned it off and said, look, you're, you're going to listen to this clown. You deserve what you get, okay? He knows he's wrong, you guys. That's the worst part of this. And he's not man enough to admit his mistakes. That is really shameful, costing people money, you know? Yeah, he's the world's greatest asset manager over the last three weeks. Okay, how's your gold fund done, sir? Uh, I'm down like 10% over the last two years in gold. Like, that's not a good uh, asset manager. But as he said, he doesn't care. I guess what he cares about is Twitter followers. But let's let's change the subject. I apologize. Uh, I, I'm supposed, I, I made a New Year's commitment that I was going to be nicer. So I'm not, following, <laughs> I'm not following through on that nicety right now. Uh, I, I that's all right. We can, uh, you know, at the very least, we can say Peter Schiff accepts Bitcoin. So that's, there's the truth of it all right there for you. I don't yeah. have my tinfoil hat. This is going to ah. but I'm fully convinced. I that. like his son. I, did you know this story? I actually gave his son Bitcoin for his son's birthday. Uh, over two years ago, he, he, he admitted that he owned a Bitcoin wallet. So I said, get me a, uh, get, give me your address. I wasn't sure if I was talking on Twitter with a robot or not. Anyway, to that robot address, I sent a bunch of Bitcoin. It wasn't a bunch. It was like a hundred us dollars worth. Happy birthday, Spencer. He admitted he got it. Then his father comes on and says, you bunch of Bitcoin idiots are sending uh, Bitcoin to my son. Man, I thought you were stupid. Now I'm sure of it. So that $100 that I sent to Spencer was when Bitcoin probably was at 8,000 bucks. So it's still up four oh. times. I really hope he didn't sell it. Okay. <laughs> From there, it had gone up as high as 70 uh, or gone up as high as over 10, uh, almost 10 times. Point is this, again, remember, Bitcoin is part of a diversified portfolio of hard assets, including gold. I own gold. I own gold for days like today because gold is actually flatlining and Bitcoin and other harder assets than gold or equally hard assets are down 10% plus. What does a smart risk manager do on days like today? Peels off a little bit of his gold, buys a little more of the other hard assets that have not held in like gold is held in. I could see, I could see the logic in that. I uh, I was wondering to, to pivot a little bit if you wanted to touch on the structure of the El Salvador Bitcoin bond. Yeah, great uh, question. I, I cannot. Um, I have not involved myself in the process enough to talk. I, I did initially when I saw the initial terms. I understand that it would be unbelievable if they actually get the, the funding done in February. They talked about an order book. If that order book is uh, real, like I'm, I'm, I'm used to living in a world where you have an underwriter that goes around and 
uh, canvases some really big accounts that set set the anchor orders for order books, and then they show the rest of the uh, the interest to the to the rest of the world. I, I will just tell you this: on the surface, from what I know, a Bitcoin bond structured like the El Salvador bond makes a lot of sense to me. I am not certain of their execution. I hope it's it succeeds. I mean, it's a billion dollars. Uh, it, there was a time when a billion dollars was a lot of money. A billion dollars is nothing anymore. It's really funny to say that, isn't it? Royal Bank of Canada had $4 billion of defaulted Latin American debt, and that was enough to make it insolvent in 1988. And now we talk about a billion dollars as if you can just find it in your seat cushion at your office, you know, like, oh, okay, well, here's a billion. I mean, the Fed's done trillions, so a billion is like one one thousand. So who really cares? Um, it will change the lives of the Bitcoin population if they can get some uh, some funding that is not IMF uh, uh, stamp of approval and all the you know living under the foot of the IMF and all of these other corrupt uh, uh, global uh, financial organizations. I really hope it happens. As a Bitcoiner, I am considering moving to El Salvador, okay? I will wow. just tell you over the long term, attracting people with, uh, I'm not saying I'm rich, but I, I'm probably better off than the average uh, uh, citizen of El Salvador. If you attract people like that to your country because you have policies that, uh, that are open-minded, that's going to change the GDP and the growth prospects of an entire nation of 6 million people. And I want them to succeed. I want them to succeed because they deserve it. I want them to succeed because they have a president who thinks outside the box. And I really want them to succeed because assholes like Steve Hankey don't want them to succeed. And that is absolutely disgraceful in my opinion. So, I've said a lot of hate words. I will say some love to the people of El Salvador. I honestly want a better future for you. I want a better future for you. And you've had the guts to embrace a solution that I believe in that will open the future for you and for your children. And any other nation that's not considering doing the same thing is probably going to wish they did in five or 10 years when countries like El Salvador are, are leading the pack and the rest of us are pulling up the rear. Canada, a G7 nation, owns zero gold. I would love Canada to embrace Bitcoin as a store of value on its balance sheet for the future of my children and other Canadian children. Yeah, the, the question becomes, are you interested in waiting to see what other countries are going to adopt Bitcoin friendly policy? Because I, I, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm sure it's going to happen this year. Um, yeah, I don't see any reason say, why sure, not. Right? Um, look, I, 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 am, uh, I did give a presentation to 45 members of parliament uh, for, in Canada on Bitcoin. I know that there's people studying it. Now, studying it and embracing it as a as legal tender like El Salvador did is a there's a, a, a very big delta between the two, right? Uh, but at least people are studying it. Uh, would I love Canada to be there? Uh, I don't think you were implying that Canada is going to be there in the next little while. But would there be other uh, less uh, lesser privileged countries than Canada that should consider it? Well, I've seen stuff about Ethiopia and this beautiful dam they have and all this power that's heretofore gone to waste that could be used for Bitcoin mining. And I'm like, go for it, guys. Absolutely, 100% go for it because I'm a privileged old boomer and I'm embarrassed about privileged old boomers like myself who are so soft that they cannot endure any hardship that we are pulling forward gains that should be accruing to our children because we're so soft, we can't even deal with asset price corrections or, uh, you know, the, the thought of um, uh, the government not being there to give you hand, handouts, okay? Like, we got to start ponying up. We got to start helping 
those who are less privileged. Otherwise, there's going to be class warfare. You, you don't want a lot of this stuff that is very clearly on the table because of failed government policies and fiat money that causes a widening of the wealth gap. Yeah, I mean, the wealth gap in America right now presently is wider than it was right before the French Revolution. So it, right before when? The French Revolution in France when right before. The okay, French. okay. Interesting. I, I'm not sure how you measure that, but uh, uh, it seems logical to me. I mean, uh, based on low, low average of the lowest income, uh, okay, average income of the lowest denominated class and the average income of the highest denominated class, interesting inflation, inflation adjusted, you actually have a wider disparity today presently than you did back then. Yeah, intuitively, it makes sense. I mean, just you can just feel it, right? Um, you know, everyone. Everyone feels good when the government puts a couple of thousand dollars in your bank account. But the reality is the people that it hurts the most are the people that think the most of it, meaning like, oh, my God, I've never had a couple of thousand dollars in my bank account before in my life. Now I have it thanks to the government. They don't realize they're the people that are being hurt most by that policy. Yeah, I will say, I mean, what what do you say to the people who are finding that that for the first time in their life they can save um, due to Bitcoin? I feel like there are a lot of young retail yeah. investors who, especially over all the mobile apps that have come out that have made it possible, you know, Cash App and Strike being you know some of the best among mm. them. I mean, what what do you say to these people who are now finding themselves uh, <laughs> saving money for the first time in their life? Congratulations! Like, um, you know, one of the stories I've used, and I don't know whether it's been on a Bitcoin Magazine podcast, but when I was, uh, you know, a little younger than you guys, but still in my early twenties, um, one of my summer jobs was uh, asphalt shingles. Right, I was installing asphalt shingles on roofs. And if you guys have ever want to go through a horrendously hard work eight hour day, go on the top of a roof when it's 80 degrees out and it's blazing sunshine. And you, I earned in the 1980s, I earned maybe $5 an hour because I was paid with cash, $5 an hour. And I worked an eight hour day. So I made 40 bucks in one day. And imagine if I had never converted that fiat money to, let's say, an equity or something. And there's a chance I didn't, given that my earnings power increased and increased over time. That original $40 sitting there in my bank account could still be there in theory in cash, right? What do you think that $40 buys me today after 30 odd years? Maybe a beer and a couple of hamburgers. And I'm thinking, damn, I put a lot more energy and time into that eight hour day than the energy that's in a couple of hamburger or yeah, a couple of hamburgers and a beer, right? You need to put your time and energy, you need to store it in an instrument that will maintain its value in energy terms over time and space. That's why I love Bitcoin so much. As an engineer, it is digital energy. It's storing the value of your energy that you expend today for use and consumption in the future on a basis that number goes up over time mathematically. Is it 100% certain? Absolutely not. But I certainly like the odds of that type of system versus a fiat system that is 100% certain to debase. You cannot argue with that. In an inflationary environment or a deflationary environment, the fiat currency is 100% certain to debase. Don't store your value or your time and energy in that instrument. That is foolhardy. Absolutely not. And I like the way you put that. I always think of Bitcoin as um, trading time now for time later. It's, it's, it's this perfect way to, to, to store monetary energy and time with, with no impairment cost, except that of the energy expended by the network as a whole and the miners. Um, do you have any takes on the correlation between the price and the hash rate? Do you follow the Bitcoin oh, 100%. hash rate? Look, I'm in the Bitcoin mining? mining business. Bitcoin mining is mm -hmm. a bad business to begin with, and it's even worse right now. 
as the price of Bitcoin goes lower, but hash goes higher. I mean, so when I say I'm in the business, that's not altogether true. I'm in the energy business or we are power providers and some of our off takers are Bitcoin miners. We plan to do some for ourselves as well, but I've never been enamored with the Bitcoin mining process in itself if you don't control your own input costs, which is primarily the energy that you use to mine Bitcoin. So our integrated uh, value proposition is we own power plants and we mine Bitcoin. And you can get value for those power plants, particularly when you can kick back the power to the grid when the grid is at a deficit and you can get paid peaking types of uh, rates for 5% of the year and the other 95% of the year you're mining Bitcoin when the when the uh, the grid does not need your power. So Bitcoin solves that. Bitcoin is a beautiful engineering development proof of work that over time people will come to appreciate as actually stabilizing our grids. That'll be another education process, but Bitcoin mining where you are captive to a utility, they can either interrupt you or pass through tariffs at their own uh, volition. That's a tough business. And it's gotten tougher with the price of Bitcoin going down as the hash rate goes up. What are, so go ahead, Q. I'm just curious on, on specifically asking someone who's involved in the mining business and as well, using your own energy to supply the energy used for the miners. What, if any consideration, are the happenings in your process as far as strategy and implementation of miners when you're, um, when you're affording it a holding strategy and you're sort of going to keep all of the Bitcoin that you mine versus let me sell off what I need to to continue my expenses? Where you're, that- uh, you're a couple of steps in front of me, Q. Maybe we'll hire you as our uh, strategist on that front, okay? Um, we, uh, we have a date, uh, that we're going to be self-mining in, uh, in the future. It's not for public consumption, but the point is this, we are trying to reduce the risk of Bitcoin mining by at least controlling our input costs. We still won't control our output revenue because that revenue number is set by the price of Bitcoin in the market. But think of the business as itself. If you don't control your input costs, and you don't control your output revenue. Man, there's not a lot of things you can control in there, is there? And I'm not certain I want to jump into that type of business with both feet. So what I would say is, yeah, it's, it's a part of a risk management process. Will we use um, instruments available to us in the market to, uh, to make our output revenue more certain and fungible? Yeah, but we're not going. We're going to save some. Like I like creating Bitcoin at eleven thousand dollars when it's trading at thirty-five thousand bucks Canadian. Okay, so eleven thousand Canadian, thirty-five thousand Canadian. That model still makes sense. It just doesn't make as much sense when it's at eleven thousand and it's trading at seventy-five thousand Canadian. You know what I'm saying? So these are some of the risks that are in the market. Um, the market's getting smarter. By the way. You know, some of the sell pressure in Bitcoin comes when the miners realize that maybe they owed and held too much Bitcoin and then they had to sell because, you know, the market's not giving them credit for holding Bitcoin now. So what do they do? They flush it at the worst time in the market as well. Human nature is exactly that, right? When everyone's yelling, you should be in there selling. And when everyone's crying, you should be in there buying. But what do most people do? Most people are, when everyone's yelling, they're in there buying. And when everyone's crying, they're in there selling, right? Like it's so messed up. You got to understand that emotion leads you to make your worst trades ever. Separate emotion from a trade. Do it on a module uh, on a calculated risk adjusted basis discipline is key to managing risk if you own bitcoin now and you're upset because the price has gone down so much the only thing i could say is guys i'm sorry but perhaps you own a touch too much there's no other way and then you could say well i'm not really that upset then i'll say put a you know put a cork in it let's talk in a couple of years then and try and ignore these price fluctuations. My best bet is risk markets continue to sell off. If risk markets continue to sell off, Bitcoin is going lower. If Bitcoin's going lower and it already hurts, 
I hate to say this, but it might hurt a little bit more uh, in, a, in a few days or weeks. And I don't want that. But markets always move in the directions that cause in the direction that causes the most pain to the most people. Everybody's long equities right now. Everybody's long crypto and everybody's getting carved a new asshole. Okay. Welcome to markets. The first bear market for a lot of people is, is not a, a fun time to say the least. The first wait till you get in a real bear market, wait until <laughs> things have dropped 80%. Okay. Wait until you have actually sat in a risk chair in 2008 and nine when the world was ending. Okay. Bear Stern stock had gone from 140 bucks a share down to two bucks a share. Okay. Do some math on that. And by the way, when JP Morgan bought them at two bucks a share, it was really worth negative 50. Okay. So JP Morgan just bailed them out. The equity fools had no clue. And by the way, who was telling you to buy Bear Stearns stock? Jim Cramer. Jim Cramer, Dick Fold, the president of uh, or CEO of Lehman Brothers, made a famous statement in 2008. He says, I am going to make the shorts hurt. And that's why I am here. I don't think they hurt too badly shorting your stock, Mr. Fold. They understood mathematics. And when the financial system is levered as much as it is, the equity is nothing but a little option that gets, gets vaporized very, very quickly. You try and teach that to equity guys over time and they remember it for about six months and then they're back to the casino and they're like, oh, uh, uh, equities grow to the, to the moon, right? Trees grow to the moon. No, they don't grow to the moon when the fertilizer, which, call, which is called the credit market, isn't fertilizing the equities. And right now, well, they're not getting a lot of fertilizer and you're seeing what's happening. So one thing that I, I've noticed a ton with newer investors and newer traders in particular is this idea of, oh, it's going to the moon. It, it can't stop going. Oh, it's $10 a share. It's going to go to 50 without consideration of what is the market cap? What does a $10 right. share stock look like when it is $50 a share? Are you really saying this $10 million, $10 billion company is now all of a sudden going to be worth $50 billion? Yeah, yeah. But that, that is another consideration that I think just gets lost in the story. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, look, the one reason that Bitcoin can go to a market cap that I think is close to $50 trillion, which would make it by far and wide, it would make it uh, 10 times bigger than Apple, okay? Why? First of all, it's way more important than Apple. But secondly, because it takes, it draws addressable market from bonds, real estate, debt, equities, every other short volatility asset okay because why well because it's a long volatility asset so therefore money should flow to that insurance product yeah i know it, it's not showing its uh itself very well lately but again we're only 13 years old okay wait until real money actually understands the beauty of bitcoin and then they will be running to buy it at times like this. Why? Because it's your insurance product or your insurance protection. We've got about 10 minutes left, if that's all right with you. Sure. Greg? Yeah. And uh, I'll let, I'll let Q, do you have uh, some final questions? Yeah. Um, I, I want to go back to, to two things in particular that you've brought up. Firstly, this idea of let's, let's get Canada to get on board with backing their fiat currency with Bitcoin. What does that system in your perfect scenario, you are, you are making all the decisions here, Greg. No one is going to question you. What does that system look like? Are we still going to be printing? Is there a cap on how much can get printed? How much is sort of the limit? What are the boundaries yeah. you would like them to play with? Well, the elephant in the room is the outstanding debt, right? And you are going to need to print money to avoid defaulting on that outstanding debt. Now, that outstanding debt is going to lose purchasing power over time as the money that you're getting paid back in gets debased over time. That's why bonds are such a horrible investment. First of all, you're earning a below inflation adjusted rate of return. The last time inflation was at these levels, the 10-year bond yielded a 3% real return, which meant in today's environment, interest rates would be at 10% in the US 10-year, 
and they're actually under 2% in our current manipulated environment. But nonetheless, these are contractual obligations, right? And it's not the, the world's not going to take a fiat issuing nation lightly that defaults on its debt, much like they don't take Argentina lightly when it defaults. It just happens to be a serial defaulter, but it's never happened in a G7 nation. So I think that you're still going to have to have fiat printing to solve the outstanding debt. And why is that? Well, guess who owns all the outstanding debt? Pension funds and pension plans that represent the savings and uh, retirement accounts of our citizens, right? So there's going to be political pressure there. Uh, doesn't mean I tell you to buy bonds. Bonds are a horrible, horrible risk-adjusted investment right now, which leaves equities that over time have to go up in order that pension plans don't become underfunded. That's why the Fed is going to have to take their foot off the brake and understand that they need to rescue equity markets once again. But how does the system look? I don't actually know. All I do know is the status quo doesn't work and we need to put in place a backstop that will allow us to at least experiment. So Michael Saylor, a guy who's incredibly smart, way smarter than me, believes in the case of the USA, if the USA were to embrace uh, Bitcoin as a store of value on their Federal Reserve balance sheets, it would actually make the US dollar a better fiat currency. And I understand his logic there. I'll just tell you, markets don't always move in exactly that direction, maybe in the long run, but in the short run, there's a lot of toing and froing. Um, but I believe, I, I think that that thesis holds water. And therefore, if it holds water in the USA, should it hold water in Canada? Yeah, it should. Canada is still, again, a little rounding error compared to the United States. But if we did it and the experiment proved, uh, uh, I'll use the word profitable or proved uh, smart in Canada, then game on. Then every single central bank will have to employ the same strategy. And what does that do for the price of Bitcoin? It becomes self-fulfilling. It's game theory. One country does it, then another country does it. And the countries that aren't doing it are like, well, these countries are doing it. Maybe I should do some. And then it becomes self-fulfilling. And then it solves the problem that energy always goes up in fiat dollar terms. Energy prices can go down in Bitcoin terms. And since Bitcoin is digital energy, that's where technology will actually show its uh, true colors. When, when energy prices as priced in Bitcoin, not in fiat dollars, actually decline. And these are some unbelievably beautiful solutions that take time to, uh, to, 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 you know, flower or grow. But I'm an optimist, generally. I'm an optimist, and I want this to happen, and I believe it can happen. Uh, am I certain? No. I mean, with every single phrase that comes out of our prime minister's mouth, mouth with things like, well, the budget will balance itself, and forgive me if I don't care about monetary policy, you know, I just stick a fork in my eye, right? Like this guy should not be managing a country. If he was managing a company, he would be fired on the spot for uh, avoiding fiduciary responsibility for the stakeholders in that company, right? I run a company and I believe the budget is going to balance itself. Uh, excuse me, sir. Here's the door. You failed mathematics. So, I you know. I have a slightly off topic question on that. What, in your opinion, is the difference between a really big, um, you know, a country and like a well-armed, really big corporation? Sorry, when you say well-armed, what does that mean? <laughs> I mean, they've got a, they've got a, a standing army to fight off entropy and to keep the USA alive, Canada, all of these. I, I just, I struggle to see the difference sometimes between just like the largest the largest corporations that are out there and, and countries who just have a monopoly on a lot of the energy production and, yeah. and the warfare and the well, let's, violence. I'm going to answer that question from an optimist viewpoint. Uh, certainly in free market capitalism, uh, anybody who has money can compete. And generally it's the central banks who have more printed money than anybody else. But certainly a lot of corporate treasurers uh, who are free to make decisions on behalf of their stakeholders have to be considering 
this same mathematics that Michael Saylor went through. Um, and then it's a competition of the smartest and it's a competition of uh, those who survive and, and, and uh, reap the gains for their constitu constituents. Now, the constituents could be shareholders in the case of uh, corporations or stakeholders, bondholders and equity holders, or they can be citizens in the case of countries. And yeah, the race will be on. Like, you know, I, I live in Canada. We have two official languages, right? We have French and English. My wife is French Canadian. I love the French culture. But in honesty, we should be learning Spanish here in Canada, okay? We should be learning Spanish so that we can talk to El Salvador, who will be a more prosperous country on a per, per capita basis than Canadians. It's my opinion. I could be wrong. But El Salvador has figured this game out. Yeah, I know he's getting a lot of heat right now and he's wearing it. Did you see that? Uh, oh, sorry. Sailor <laughs> wore a real tahinis ball cap. Hey, did you see that? Michael said that real <laughs> yes. tahinis is a great restaurant in Canada. I know the owner, Ali. He's a, just a brilliant young man. And then Bukele was wearing a McDonald's hat. Did you see that? So look, yeah. these guys at least have one of the things you learn on Wall Street and Bay Street when you trade for 30 years, if you can't poke fun at yourself for making a call that uh, hasn't panned out in the short term, you're not going to survive, brother and sister, because the markets move in directions that causes the most pain to the most people. And you can pretend you're having fun right now at the expense or the schadenfreude of other markets that are getting carved as well. Look, I wish I could say this to people who are hurting right now, and I don't want it to sound flippant, I'd love to talk to you in 20 years. That's all I can say. I am planning for 20 years. I don't know if I'll be along, alive that long, but I have three kids that I'm pretty certain will be. So I'm putting in place insurance policies that I'll look back 20 years from now and say, damn, at least somebody in the Foss family did some mathematics and understood the purest store of value ever created deserves a little bit of allocation of my net worth. And I'm not going to tell you what my holding percentage is, but I'll tell you it's more than zero and it is not 100%. Okay. It's just the way I manage risk. And I encourage people to take the long view, lower your time preference. If you have to go and work at McDonald's and uh, real tahinis, well, there's worse places you can work. Congrats to Sailor and Bukele for having the, um, you know, the intestinal fortitude to po poke some fun at themselves. And fuck you, Steve Hankey. You're a fucking disgrace, okay? <laughs> Go pound sand, you old fucking squid. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thanks so much. Uh, that's Greg Foss, everybody. Great to have you on. Um, yeah, would love to have you on again sometime. All, maybe all a the month time, boys. I can't wait in. to see you in Miami anytime you want. I just am trying to help people and educate them and understand that nothing goes up in a straight line. Uh, Bitcoin is still a fraction of what I think its potential price is, which is over US dollar, 2 million a Bitcoin in today's dollars. Just run some probability analysis, figure out what your right exposure to that outcome is. And we'll talk in 20 years, but you and I will talk in hopefully less than 20 months and I'll see you in Miami. All right. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go that way. And by the way, Steve Hankey, you can find me in Miami. Okay. I dare you to come to Miami. You fucking old fuck. Okay. Thank you so much. <laughs> Greg, it was cool. oh, thanks so much. Yeah, have yeah. a great rest of your day. All right. See ya. Thanks for having me. Yeah.